Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf Lamed Hay, page 35. Okay, now, our Gemara here, at the very top of the daf, carries on from the Mishnah, from the end of the previous daf, and it's going to explain Beta Parva, meaning what is this, my Parva, what is this word? You know, it's kind of a, a funny knee is the name for a chamber. Why would it be called this? What is it? Amar Yosef Parva Amgusha. Amgusha. So Rav Yosef says the Parva is the name of a Persian sorcerer. This really needs some unpacking, right? Meaning to begin with, but it says like his name was associated with this particular room because there was an incident. What does it mean there was an incident? So, <laughs> and then of course, the Gemara itself doesn't really want to get into it. Like, you just have to know about the incident. So, here's what we know. According to Rashi, okay, Parva is just the name of the guy who built the hall. Uh, apparently, he was a sorcerer, too, but meaning that that's not changing. He's not contradicting the Gemara, but that's why his name is there, because he is the, the builder. The Me'iri says, well, really what happened is that the sorcerer did shuva, or maybe he converted, something like that, and then he built the hall which changes the story significantly, meaning he paid for this hall of the Beit HaMikdash from his own money, and therefore he's contributing to the Beit HaMikdash in a really significant and startling kind of way. The Gaonim, who actually predate both Rashi and the Meiri, said that what happened is that this was a sorcerer who wanted to spy on the Kohen Gadol, meaning in the, in the Kodesh Gadashim, they wanted to see what did he do on Yom Kippur, and so that he could... I imagine, you know, there's some, with all this high, you know, extreme level of spirituality, I imagine that a sorcerer would think that he could harness it for some, for his own purposes, right? So the story goes that he dug a tunnel into the courtyard so that he could kind of navigate and get under there and then spy, right? But then, and then just to, you know, add this, I'm getting all this information I should note from the Koran notes on the Gemara, right? They, of course, are getting it from the Rishonim, you can look up all of the different sources themselves, but they've put it together in this very nice package, even though it's a little bit anachronistic, right? Meaning if I were doing the research, I might start with the Gaonim and then go to Rashi and then go to the Meiri and then, or before the Meiri, the Rambam. Here we've got the Rambam. He says, this sorcerer was caught. He was killed, meaning when he was trying to spy. And so then, and this is the incident, right? The incident of the Gemara. He was killed so that they named it after him so that everybody would know, don't you dare try meaning you will get caught. It is not going to work. So all of this is like, you know, high drama in the Beta Mikdash. It's a little bit, you know, a lot of, when I say it needs unpacking, I don't know how a sorcerer from who we don't know anything about him, how he would have known about the activities of the Kohen Gadol, how he would have managed to tunnel in, you know, to dig a tunnel in any way, shape or form. I'm not sure that would be the easiest way to smuggle yourself in if that's what you wanted to do. You know, there's a, there's still a lot of open questions here, but the Gemara is really where the, the question is asked in the most dramatic form. I mean, it does not ask. It just leaves it hanging, right? Because it says, it doesn't say anything, right? It just says, Parva Amgusha. He was a sorcerer and carry on your merry way. What do you mean carry on your merry way? That's a story. I want to know what that story is, right? So later, Rabbi Shimon does explain that the name of this hall, this Parva, he says it in a completely different way. He says that it was given... Um, the the parim the uh, cows, right? They have the they would they would be slaughtered there, and they would have the blood that would be sprinkled, I guess. So then this would be the hole of the parva, meaning the hole where they would slaughter those the bulls, 
Um, and then his claim is that the sorcerer, because again, you have to explain what the Gemara has this word of Amgusha, what is the sorcerer doing in the Gemara? And he was only responsible. His whole story is just about the mikveh at the top of the at the top of the um ulam of, of this whole big room. The whole of it, I think, is you know, again, I would like a multimedia presentation on exactly what happened and exactly how and exactly when. And the Gemara does not um, comply with that request. I mean, this the the name of this chamber sort of has been dropped many times. So first of all, it's so interesting. It's only really discussed here. But I agree with you. This is one of the more peculiar stories that somehow, no matter what it is, you know, even if the person did chuba, didn't do chuba. The fact that you have like this this chamber named after a sorcerer that's being used on the most holy day. And also, I would presume that this was done at a certain period of time. So something had to be used before that as well. And we're not given any historical context to it. And I'll add to this conundrum of historical context. This word amgusha seems to be the word that means the magi. What I would say the magi, maybe it's magi in the original, right? Who are Zoroastrian priests? Meaning, whether you call them a sorcerer or not is is kind of incidental, right there. But the point, my point here is, Magi, the Zoroastrian priests are are contemporaneous with the Gemara, not with the Beit Hamikdash. So the fact that this is phrased this way is Gemara language, right? For for starters, we should acknowledge that, right? Babylonian Gemara language, where there is, you know, uh, there is presence of the Zoroastrian culture around them in Bavel. We know this because of our our friend Shai Sekunda, Professor Shai Sekunda, who, who is really a master of, you know, exactly the influences of the Zoroastrian culture in Middle Persia on the Gemara. So we can't say that that's not, there's nothing there to that, except for that it doesn't make tremendous sense to say that there were Magi, meaning Zoroastrians, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. I, right, and I think, but it's important to remember that the you know, issue of Zoroastrianism was a real issue. And that, you know, many of the things we see about, you know, davening, like the text of davening, you know, that you couldn't say modim, modim. These are things that come up in the Gemara was exactly because of this, right? Because they had a belief in sort of two different gods, a good one and a bad one. And, you know, we had to sort of protect ourselves to show that that was not a belief that we had, that we as Jews believed in monotheism. Right. So then to say that, here we've got a chamber named after his arrest. Like, I, I don't yeah, know. It's that weird. He, it's weird. It's weird. I um, don't know that the guy is Zoroastrian. I think it's just that's the vocabulary they have for anybody who is, I guess, a foreign spiritual sorcerer type. That may be. Um, I'm going to move on from here. And uh, the Gemara gets into an interesting discussion about the clothing of the Kohanim and how much they cost. And, you know, it's clear from the mission that we discussed yesterday that this was an area where the Kohen Gadol could actually um, sort of use their own funds um, in order to actually um, make, you know, make the clothing, um, make them clothing themselves. And then Ahmed Beth, they get into a discussion how sort of they could bring their own clothing, but it needs to be donated to the temple in service of the temple. Um, and then, um, and, and Rav Huna, um, and, you know, sort of uh, says this very, very weird thing where he says, you know, the uh, Imrile Rav Shmuel Bar Yehuda, this is what Rav Huda, like once the service was completed, 
So the Cohen whose mother made him this katonet, and you can totally see how if you were a woman who was blessed to have a child who was a Cohen Gadol, this would sort of be your thing that you did for them, that you gave them this beautiful clothing on Yom Kippur, right? That he would um, put it on, do sort of the private service, meaning what was done in the Kaddish Kedoshim, right? The highlight of the service. And then he sort of had to give that tunic over, that clothing over to the public for, for temple use. Um, and, you know, and they said, you know, why does this need to be stated? It's obvious, but it's to make sure that you know, we maybe were concerned that they wouldn't want to transfer it over, but of course they would. And then the Gemara goes on to discuss this case of um, a few different Kohen Gadols, right? Rabbi Shmuel ben Pabi, whose mother made him a, a ketonet and how much that that was worth. And then this Rabbi Elazar ben Kharsom, who we really don't know anything about other than this passage in the Gemara. Um, and it says here, again, I'm, I'm not reading it just because I'm going to read a huge chunk in a few minutes, that his mother made him this also this katona that was worth 20,000 mana, but um, he wasn't allowed to wear it. And you can imagine that it was sort of so beautiful and so thin, this linen tunic, because remember, they're wearing linen and linen, we know, sort of, you can see things through that actually he couldn't wear because you almost you could see uh, through the through the clothing um itself and they talked a little bit about this but now the Gemara wants to talk about because obviously Rabbi Elizabeth ben Kharsom was very wealthy um, if he was able to afford or his mother could afford this $20,000 uh, 20,000 mana um, you know piece of clothing and so we have a very beautiful and interesting brisa here which the first half is very famous but I want to read the whole thing because the other two parts of it are less famous but I think equally uh, equally valuable Tana Rabbanan a poor person, a wealthy person, and a wicked person all come to judgment. This actually, when I read it, Anne, I'll just have to say, this sounded like a like a like the beginning of a joke, right? Like a rabbi. <laughs> walking to a bar. Walking to a bar. So this is like a poor person, a rich person, um, and a wicked person come into judgment before God. All right. So to the poor person, they say, why didn't you learn more Torah? Right, And if he says, I was poor and I was worried about getting my food, right? They would say, there was no poor person greater than Hillel. And now they're going to describe what Hillel did. Right, they said on Hillel HaZakein. So again, this is the Hillel of Hillel and Shammai. Sorry, so each and every day he would do something so that he could learn this is a monetary value, a tarpakit, all right? Chetio hayano tain lishmor beit hamidrash, so half of it he would give to the guard at the study hall, v'chetio leparsinoto leparnasat anshei beito, and half of it was for his livelihood. Pamachat lo matzah lihishtaker, one time he couldn't earn money. V'lo hinilcho shomer hamidrash lihikaneis, and the guard of the study hall wouldn't let him in. Allah v'nita levi yashav alpi arubah. So he went up to the roof and there was like some kind of skylight. And so he stood there. Now, it's interesting to see that you had to pay to come into the Beit Midrash. And again, you know, we saw that even with that story in Brachos with Rabbi, with Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer, that there was sometimes like a guard who kept people out. And here was you were kept out unless you had money. So he climbs up onto the roof and skylight. So he could hear the words of the living God from Shemayim Naftalyam. So remember, Hillel and Shammai are the last of the five Zugot, right? There's those five pairs that basically take us to the time of the Tanaim. And Shemayim Naftalyam are the fourth Zug, and they come right before Hillel and Shammai. 
Amru Tohayom Erev Shabbat Haya. So it was Erev Shabbat Tikufat Tevet Haita, and it was in Tevet, right? By Yarada Lev Shelg Mina Shemayim. And snow was coming down. It's the middle of winter. Kishala Amud Hashachar, when daytime broke, Amru Lo Shemayel Avtalyon. Shemayel says to Avtalyon, Avtalyon Achi, Avtalyon, my brother. Bechol Yom Habayit Meir Vahayom Eifel. Every day there's light coming in, right from the skylight, but today it's dark. Shama Yom Hamu'an Hu. So maybe it's just it's a cloudy day and there really was no light coming in. They look up and they see there's a man figures on the skylight. And they come and they find three amot of snow on top of Hillo. This sounds like also like a Hans Christian Andersen story, right? Uh, yeah. They take him out, they wash him. They put oil on him and they put him opposite the fire. In other words, you literally can picture like frozen Hillel being taken out and then warming him up on Shabbat. Um, and also notice anointing him with oil is interesting for them to do on Shabbat as well, because as far as I know, you don't really use oil on Shabbat, right? You're not allowed to smear in that way. Right? So that's why they say, see, it's appropriate to desecrate Shabbat. So it was, you know, they realized how great it was what he did. And they would even, uh, they were allowed to desecrate Shabbat because he totally sacrificed himself, you know, physically sacrificed his life for, for it. Now, what's interesting is to me is that this is a very famous story that everybody quotes about Hillel, but the context of the Brisa, right, which is supposed to be about judging, right, that the idea is that when the Ani comes, we can say back to the Ani, oh, you thought you needed to get food? Look what Hillel did. Why weren't you like that? And so, again, this gets to my point, which I've said so many times on this podcast is context is always important. And what bothers me is, is that the rest of the price is also amazing, which now we'll read. Ashir Omrimom, and this is why it's actually brought here. What do we say to a wealthy person? Why weren't you busy with Torah? He'll say, okay, I'm wealthy and I was busy managing my wealth. Right? Nobody was wealthier than this Rabbi Elazar ben Kharsom, who had this special, you know, ketonet made by his mother. Amr Lava Rabbi Elazar ben Kharsom. So what's the story with him? Right? So he was left basically a thousand cities and a thousand boats. And every day he would take just a flask of flour on his shoulder, right? Um, in other words, right? And so some people relate this to, you know, what Perkeva says, Imen Kemach in Torah. But the idea is he eats very simply, right? He just takes a little bit of flour with him. So here's a person with all this wealth. And he just, you, you picture him as almost a nomad just walking around to get the best Torah that he can. One time his servants find him. Ba'asubo Angaria. And they basically try to press him into service. In other words, they, 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 uh, you know, they basically, the servants didn't recognize him and they thought he was a resident of one of his towns that he owns. And they tried to get him to do work for Rabbi Elizabeth ben Kharsom, not realizing he is Rabbi Elizabeth ben Kharsom. Amr Lahan, so Rabbi Elizabeth ben Kharsom said to the servants, I beg of you, leave me alone so I can learn Torah. Amrilo, they said to him, Chaye Rabbi Elazar ben Chasson, by the life of Rabbi Elazar ben Chasson, She'ain manichim otach, we won't release you. You need to work for him. You live in one of his towns. Umiyamav lo halach Torah time. And from that day forward, he never went to see any of his servants. He basically stays hidden to go learn Torah. Eli Yosheh bo sefer Torah kol ayom b'chol halayla. 
right? He would sit and engage in Torah. So the idea is he had his servants to take care of his wealth for him. And yet he still found time to dedicate his entire life to Torah. His wealth did not become a distraction for him. And then finally, the last one, Russia, Why didn't you engage in Torah? So he says, I was handsome and I was busy with my evil inclination. In other words, the idea basically being, this was a person who was so good looking or sort of, uh, let's say, partook in illicit sexual relations or used his looks for non-good, not for good. And so, Omrim lo plum na'ehaita Yosef, were you more handsome than Yosef, right? Amor level Yosef atzadik. So what do we say about Yosef atzadik? V'chol yom v'yom ha'iti esha potifar mishtat lo b'dvarim. Begadim shalavshah lo shacharit lo lavshah lo arvit. So when he was in Potiphar's house, Aisha Potiphar wanted to make herself look attractive. So she would change her clothes. Whatever she wore in the morning, she wouldn't wear at night. What she wore at night, she wouldn't wear in the morning. Basically, so she would look attractive to him. And then she finally said to him, right? She says to, to Yosef, give yourself to me. Or surrender yourself to me, right? To basically commit adultery. Amar la laughed. And she, he says to her, no. She says, fine, I'm going to put you in prison. So he says to her, he says, okay, he goes, I don't, I'm not worried about this. And again, these are all quotes from different parts of Tehillim, right? Hashem releases those who are in prison. She says, fine, I'll bend your proud stature. In other words, I'm going to either physically make you, you know, or you're not going to feel proud anymore. I'm going to humiliate you in a way. Hashem straightens the bend. She says, fine, I'll blind you, right? Which we could see. He's not finding her attractive. So he says, fine, I'll blind you. Hashem right? Hashem gives sight to the blind. She finally gives him a, a, a 1,000 silver bars, right? So that he would finally, she's thinking, maybe I'll bribe him. If I give him enough money, he'll finally lie with her. And he still did not want to listen to her. The, the Brisa goes on then to explain a little bit more about Yosef, right? What does it mean to lie with her? But Olam Hazet was in this word, because he didn't want to be with her in the world to come, which teaches us something about punishment, right? That if you sin in this world, sort of that sin follows you in the next world. And he basically didn't want to be with her for eternity. And then the Brisa concludes with, So we find Hillel's actions basically obligate the Aniyim, that there's no excuse for them not to learn Torah. Rabbi Eliezer ben Kharsum mechayevita ashirim. Rabbi Eliezer ben Kharsum obligates wealthy people. Yosef mechayevita rishayim. And Yosef obligates the wicked people. So just, I think, a beautiful Brisa that teaches us a lot. Unfortunately, the, the famous part is the Hillel part. Um, but the point, and, and really it's brought here because of the Rabbi Eliezer ben Kharsom part and how that relates to Yom Kippur, though it's interesting the Brisa doesn't mention him being a Kohen Gadol at all, even though that's the context into which he's brought. Um, but the point here is to say that really we all come up with a million excuses of why we don't get to certain things in this world. And this Brisa is basically saying there's always somebody who is poorer than you. There's always somebody wealthier than you. There's always somebody who, you know, sort of, uh, had more of a reason to sin than you, and these people didn't do it. So you, nobody really ever has an excuse for why they didn't dedicate their life to Torah. I found this uh, right to be, I don't know if it's fair to say Hamish, but kind of like very down to earth, right? The whole of it, even beginning, and from your, the beginning of what you were talking about with, you know, uh, the the mother's involvement, right, in the clothing, let's say, and then the the idea that you, whoever you're standing next to, you can, it's so it's so real, right, in terms of 
I understand that the goal is to get people to learn Torah, and I understand that the goal is to prioritize Torah for, for everybody, and it does that very effectively, but I'm noting, I guess, that the part of the efficacy here is the fact that it is so down-to-earth and so, um, you know, practical in terms of how people relate to each other in the world, and maybe we don't always, maybe we don't want to compare to each other, but that does happen, and the idea that people, you know, will find any excuse and the Gemara comes along and says, or the Brita comes along and says, no, you can't use that excuse. We've got one better for you. You can still go sit and learn is, I think, you know, a very, um, again, a very homey targeted message. Right. And this is actually the episode that is for Arab Shavuot. And I can't think of a better way for us to wrap up this podcast because Shavuot is about, you know, us getting learning Torah. Torah. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I think this Brisa, this is, I would encourage everyone, learn this passage with your family over Shavuot and really think about, and everyone who does Daf Yomi uh, does really dedicate themselves to Torah learning. Um, and, uh, you know, to think about oh, that. Yeah, look at that. We do. <laughs> we do. But, you know, just to think about that. Well, that's our Daf discussion for the day. Rink us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.